Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. The year was 1975, and on British television, millions of viewers were about to discover the secret behind one of the greatest mysteries of all. Across the country, families watched open-mouthed with excitement as an intrepid band of investigators revealed the truth. Centuries earlier, an alien spaceship had crashed into the freezing waters of the Scottish Highlands, a spacecraft belonging to a shape-shifting race called the Zygons. And now, in the age of Gerald Ford, Leonid Brezhnev, Harold Wilson and Karen Carpenter, the Zygons were preparing to unleash their ultimate weapon, a terrifying creature known as the Scarrison, or as we would call it, the Loch Ness Monster. So Tom Holland, that was Doctor Who, Terror of the Zygons. And let's be honest, it's no more implausible than some other explanations of the Loch Ness Monster. And, um, and what did that description come from? Is it from a... I, I wrote that myself. Did you? In which yeah. book? No, I wrote it just now. Did you? Do you not do you not think that do you not write bespoke introductions for episodes of the rest is history? No, normally I rip them out of books. <laughs> well, I'm that very, was very impressed. I so you didn't write about this in any of your landmark histories of nineteen seventies Britain. Although I could have done because actually what awakens the Scarrison and the Zygons in that Doctor Who story from nineteen seventy five is the is um, North Sea oil is the efforts to get North yeah. Sea oil. So, so it's very, very timely. Right. So, that, I mean, this takes us immediately to the point of what we're talking about today, which is obviously the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, yeah. And you may be wondering, why are we talking about the Loch Ness Monster in a history podcast? Because we're not cryptozoologists um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or anything along that line. Dominic, you're well known for your love of science and natural history. Of course, and all that everybody kind of knows stuff. I, lo- I love science. But, uh, but that very specific mid-70s context for the Loch Ness Monster shows, I think, why, we, why we're covering it. That it's a historical a way, phenomenon, isn't it? It is a historical yeah. phenomenon. So you didn't, you, because the 70s, when I was growing up, the Loch Ness Monster was a very, very vivid part of uh, my mental imagination. Um, yeah. And I, we'll come to why later on. I wonder if you had the same Usborne book that I did, which was a book of mysteries that had um, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, the Yeti. Yeah. I did. Um, all of you know, and it's actually worth these are these are interesting comparisons because they they're very revealing about why people become interested at a particular moment yeah. in these kinds of phenomena. Well, I, I did have that, but I also had another book which was, and I can still, if I shut my eyes, I can visualize it absolutely. It was by a man called Tim Dinsdale, who again may reappear in our our narrative, but on the cover it had it was a purple, so it was a kind of twilight setting the lock um urquhart castle the famous ruined backdrop to so many uh, illustrations of loch ness and there was a kind of plesiosaur so a long-necked aquatic reptile from the mesozoic rearing up its neck um and i 
I, I came across it just as I was emerging from my dinosaur obsession. But I so wanted it to be real. I so yeah, wanted Nessie to be real. Um, and I think lots of other people did, particularly in the 70s. I think they did. They still do, I think, Tom. And I think that sense of yearning, that sense of kind of desperation to believe that this had existed, I think is a really interesting... But Tom, also, there are people who, have, uh, who are very keen for it not to exist, not least... Um, members of the Scottish government who have recently been publishing advice. We shall come to this because they have very strong views about um, the popular culture of the Loch Ness Monster, don't they? And indeed have been encouraging Scottish school children or to delve they? into this issue. Or have, have they? Well, we'll come or, to or this. Or have they? Um, I, I'm not don't sure. Don't tell I me think... this is yet another bit of fake, <laughs> rest is history, fake news. That would be terrible. Well, the account I read was in the Daily Mail, uh, and the Daily yeah. Mail again will play a we'll very key part in <laughs> yes. this. So, Britain's best. So, for those people who don't newspaper. know, because I know we have a lot of Australians, a lot of Americans, uh, Belgians, Danes, and so on who listen to this podcast. Tom, where is Loch Ness? Okay, so what I would say first of all is that Loch Ness is not just a British phenomenon; that Loch Ness has a kind of global resonance. So, um, we make no apologies for dealing with this uh, this subject um and it, it, you know it has featured in large numbers of hollywood films all kinds of stuff so it, the loch ness monster is up there well, you mentioned bigfoot you mentioned yeah. the yeti it's it's one of the kind of the big the big uh, crypto zooids i think they're you're called. trying not to say the big beasts aren't you <laughs> the big beasts <laughs> the big beasts uh, so the the backdrop to this the setting of loch ness um it's the largest body of freshwater in Britain and Ireland. And it's basically very, very long and very, very thin. Yes. And if you imagine um, the map of Scotland, uh, there is a, a kind of, it's called the Great Glen. It's this great kind of valley that goes roughly kind of about 45 degrees, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. From the south up towards the north. So it's um, from roughly Fort William to Inverness, isn't it? Yes. Uh, to, uh, and it's that the the lock itself is uh, it's about a mile across. It's about twenty three, twenty four miles long, um, and it's very, very deep. So at its at its deepest stretches, it's deeper than the the North Sea is between Scotland and Norway, and it's very, very cloudy. So very, very difficult to see what lurks beneath the depths, which is also yeah. obviously very important. And for a long, long time, it was very, very isolated. The road that most people go along where Urquhart Castle features is on the um, the western side and the, the train along the eastern side is much harder to negotiate. There is now a road and again, we'll perhaps talk about how the road comes to be there. But basically, it's a very deep, very long, relatively speaking, certainly by British standards, isolated stretch of water. And that, that really is the context that Britain is a very crowded island. So the likelihood that there would be an unknown monster anywhere Surrey. in Britain is... Yeah. Well, the Surrey puma, of course. There were sightings of pumas in Surrey. Um, again, it was never yeah. tracked down. Beast of Bodmin, if you remember the Beast of Bodmin. But our monsters are more plausible, aren't they? The further you are away, you are away from the great kind of southeastern metropolis. Well, so if you think of the other one, the Yeti is in, in the Himalayas. They're very isolated. Yeah. Bigfoot is Sasquatch is kind of the the forests of um, Northwest America. Yeah. So again, very isolated. I know the Highlands are quite remote, but they're still <laughs> they're not that remote. 
So it's it, it, it's extraordinary that the, the monster comes to have this purchase. It does. And I suppose the question that that asks is, is why? Yeah. Um, and perhaps the best way to look at that is uh, we've got a question from Tom Boat History Golding. Roughly what date is the first recorded mention of a monster in Loch Ness? Well, you have the answer to this, don't you? It's pure Tom Holland territory, this. Well, it's provided. The answer was provided uh, on Twitter by none other than Fer- the great Fergal Sharkey. So who's that, Tom? Lead singer of The Undertones. And, of course, the Lorax. People in Britain will know him as the Lorax of the chalk streams. He's been leading a campaign against the despoliation of our chalk streams by predatory he's water a, companies. He's one of your walking pals, isn't he? He took me it's... for a walk along the River Ver, which is uh, a river that gave its name to Verilinium. Let's get back to Loch Ness. Very historic river. Let's get back to Loch Ness. Yeah, sorry. When going, is go... the first mention of the Loch Ness monster, Tom? Well, as I was saying, Fergal gave us the answer to this. Um, and so he, he said that he, he was uh, answering on August the 23rd. And he said that yesterday, so in other words, August 22nd, was the 1,457th anniversary of the first sighting of Nessie by St. Columba, a famous Irish monk. What's this? The year about, about the year 565 we're talking 565, about? 565, 555. So that is supposedly the first dating of a, a monster in Loch Ness. And St. Columba, are you a fay with St. Columba? I, I, there's, I, I think about St. Columba most days, Tom. Um, but just remind me who, who he was. Well, he's an well, absolute... actually, remind the, I know, obviously, but remind Of course you do. He mm. is an absolutely, um, he, he's a top early middle <laughs> medieval saint. Uh, he's from Ireland. Columba means the dove. Uh, in, in Irish, he's called Colm Killer. I hope I pronounced that right. Any Irish listeners, let me know if I haven't. Means the dove of the church. And he, like so many of these kind of holy men from Ireland, is of an aristocratic background who then gives it up to lead a highly ascetic life. And it's it's yeah. that kind of process of self-abnegation that gives him his sense of power. But he he brilliantly, according to tradition, that it, again is, as you say, one of those rest is history facts that isn't a fact. But he, he gets into trouble because he gets embroiled in the first ever battle fought over copyright. So, <laughs> so, so uh, there's a, a Welsh saint called St. Finian who has a yeah. psalter and Columba borrows the psalter and makes a copy of it um, and then says that he wants to keep the copy of it. And Finian says that he should have it back because he owns the original Psalter and therefore every copy properly belongs to him. And so mm. they take it to the High King of Ireland, who says to every cow belongs her calf, therefore to every book belongs its copy. So in other words, that you know, he's not a fan of book selling. No, he, Irish copyright it. law is very, Irish very copy- restrictive. Very, very restrictive. Um, and Columba is very cross about this because he has to hand the, uh, the, the copy of the Psalter over. And so he, he gets all his, um, his extensive and very, very uh, well-armed family to raise a rebellion against the king. And there's a big battle. So it's the yeah. first battle over, uh, over a copyright issue. Yeah. And um, Columba basically, it's, it's not looking, you know, if, if you're, a, if you're a, a holy man, this isn't the kind of behavior that you want. So he, get, he, he leaves Ireland. So this is, this is a story that's very, very late, written about a thousand years after Columba lived. But I, I think it does draw on a tradition that perhaps Columba's aristocratic background leads to him um, being embroiled in dynastic politics in Ireland in a yeah. way that is incommensurate with his status as a man of the church. And also, 
uh, as you may remember when we talked about Patrick, um, it's a big Irish thing among the saints that you go into a kind of exile, that you you go on a pilgrimage abroad. So St. Brendan going off to discover America is one. St. Columbanus mm. going to the, the continent is another. And Columba, he just pops across the sea to uh, to Scotland and he gets given the island of Iona. And it's yeah. from Iona that he then goes up the Great Glen along Loch Ness up towards uh, Fort Riu, which people from who listened to our episode on Macbeth may remember. It's kind of Pictish kingdom around where Inverness is. So that kind of area of Scotland. And the Pictish king is called Bride. And he's very interested in what Columba has to say. He doesn't convert to Christianity, but he allows Columba to come in. And Columba has various bust up with the Druids who are hanging around with Bride. But the other thing that he has a bust up with is a mysterious monster that inhabits Loch Ness. And the story is, and this, this comes from an account of Columbus' life that was written about a century after he, he, he did this. So 565, he's crossing the River Ness, and yeah. um, he sees this, uh, this person being buried. And he asks, you know, what's, what's been going on? And the people who are burying this body say that uh, the man had been swimming, that he'd been seized, and that he had been most savagely devoured by a water beast. And... Um, some people go out, they try and, and uh, beat the, the, the monster off. Um, too late, the guy is dead, but they, they manage to get the body back out of the monster's jaws and they bring him back and they, they're burying him. So Columba, hearing this, decides that something needs to be done. And so he tells one of his followers to go out and uh, get a boat that is floating out in the, in the lock. And uh, one of his followers does this, goes out, but the sea monster, the, the monster is still hungry. So comes hurtling towards the man who's swimming out uh, and he's screaming and saying, ah, I'm about to be eaten. But <laughs> Columba makes the sign of the cross and... I'm reading it here. Yeah. You will yeah. go no further. Do yes. not touch the man. Turn back speedily. He said it in that voice, Tom. He said it exactly like that. So the, race, the beast does go back as if pulled back by ropes, it says here. I'm just reading the, the saint's life. And um, the guy... You know, everybody's delighted and they say, hurrah, hurrah. And these, so these people, crucially, are pagans, aren't they? So they see this and they say, Columba must have access to this tremendous heavenly power. Isn't this splendid? Hurrah for God and, and Jesus Christ. Pretty much, yes. Um, and this is in the context of, um, well, we, we talked about Tolkien last week. So we talked yeah. about Beowulf, uh, Beowulf's mother. Yeah. Is is a fearsome monster who who inhabits a, a watery domain. So that sense of of lakes and locks as being uh, places where the spawn of Cain might live, uh, monsters bred of the first murderer, is a tradition that is not just Germanic but clearly part of. Yeah. Of, of, well, here's my question for you, Tom. As you're a man, I mean, if, if there's anybody I know who enjoys saints' lives medieval saints lives you are that man this would strike me as a as an absolutely classic saints life formulaic device rather than a genuine zoological topographical <laughs> um, description well, so in other words if you read saints lives beasts are always lurking in rivers uh the saints is is using his powers to sort of cast them out or or whatever i mean especially you know this, what is this 6th century I mean, this is an age when, when people are writing saints' lives, they always follow set formulae, and there's absolutely, surely no reason to believe that St. Columba genuinely confronted a creature of this kind 
in the River Ness. Does I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I, I, I mean, I don't think he did confront the Loch Ness Monster because I don't <laughs> think the Loch Ness Monster existed. But uh, maybe some things that make it more specific. I don't actually think that saints go around confronting aquatic monsters all that much. I mean, okay. Cuthbert doesn't do it. Aiden doesn't do it. Uh, all these other saints don't tend you to I do can, it. I bet you I can find examples of saints who confront well, I malevolent th- it, amphibians. But if we're comparing it to Beowulf, I mean, it's more a kind of heroic thing. It's kind of a warrior thing. And it may be, a ref- I don't know, maybe it's a reflection of the fact that Columbia is of, of warrior stock, perhaps. Um, okay. Yeah. So we may, I, I don't know. But just one thing to throw into the mix is that um, the Picts famously didn't write, so we we have no writings by the Picts. But they were very, very keen on um, uh, sculpting. They say absolutely wonderful sculptures. And they were very keen on sculpting animals. And all the animals are instantly recognizable. But there is one very, there's one uh, aberration, uh, one animal that doesn't seem to be anything recognizable at all. And it's this kind of strange beast with, um, it's either a very long snout or a beak, something, so a bit like a kind of crocodile's jaws and flippers. So maybe that's what inspired the story. I'm slightly clutching at straws there. But But am I not right in saying, though, Tom, that, okay, so St. Columba has this confrontation with this beast, but but then it kind of goes quiet. I mean, in the 10th century, in the 12th century, people aren't saying, gosh, remember there's that monster up at Loch Ness. I mean, no one is talking about the Loch Ness monster at all. So I'm quoting here from an excellent book that was written seven years ago by Gareth Williams, A Monstrous Commotion, The Mysteries of Loch Ness, which uh, goes through the history of all these sightings. And he quotes um, a a reference in 1520, a chronicler saying that the monster of Loch Ness is still unkilled, which is very intriguing. Could be a person. Could be a bandit captain or something. Couldn't it? It It could be. Yes, it could be. Um, Or a a wolf or, or, you know, some horrible bear. Do they have bears? I mean... Maybe they didn't. But, you know, that doesn't mean that's pretty vague. It is. It is. Your your searching scepticism is yet again puncturing the balloons of hope. Oh. But, but, but I think it reflects the fact that, as we said, that Loch Ness is very, very remote and isolated. And that, again, of course, going back to Columba is a key part of it because right. the whole thing about saints is that they go to very remote places. Uh, that's the mark of a holy man, whether it's a desert or whatever. So in a sense, going to the, the the shores of a remote lock is part of that tradition. And basically, people are not going there until the 18th century. Yes. So we mentioned how the, the it's the western side that is much more easily approachable. The eastern side, very, very hard to get along because of kind of sheer cliffs and everything. And the guy who changes that is a man whose name must forever live in infamy, General <laughs> Wade. Well, I think you're being a bit harsh on General Wade. Yes, because General Wade uh, is an 18th century general, isn't he? And he's tasked with building these military roads yeah. um, in the aftermath of the, well, it's the Union of England and Scotland. There's been the, a Jacobite um, uprising and the Hanoverians are very keen to bring Scotland, to bring the north of Scotland into the sort of the orbit of the newly formed Union. And Military roads are to enable, you know, people to march quickly if there's another Jacobite rising or something. Um, so I guess, you know, is General Wade badly regarded in Scotland to this day, Tom? Yeah. So General, so so Wade basically creates the infrastructure in the Highlands, and he joins up all these forts that have been built to uh, essentially kind of keep control of the Highlands. Um, he 
builds a lot of roads. And one of the roads that he builds, kind of blasting out, you know, cliffs and so on, so that he can construct this path, is along the eastern side of Loch Ness. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, I guess if you're a Jacobite, you're not very keen on this. But I think if you're wanting to get from, you know, one side of Scotland to the other, then it's great. So there's this this famous um, verse written about him. If you had seen this road before it was made, you would lift up your hands and bless General Wade. Is that by some sort of McGonagall figure? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Robert Burns. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, no. And, and so he's he, so he's building his roads. He also he re- recruits lots of Highland regiments um and basically these these become the black watch so this is a time when the the highlanders are seen by the military you know the british military authorities as a threat but wade is the guy who starts saying well actually they're such good fighters maybe we can get them into the british army so he's starting that but then the reason why uh, his name is forever live in infamy um is that uh, bonnie prince charlie's uprising happens yeah and wade is in newcastle and Bonnie Prince Charlie goes on the other side. So he goes past Carlisle uh, and gets all the way down to Derby before doing his retreat, going back to Culloden and so yeah. on and escaping disguised as a French maid. Wade is so annoyed about this, the fact that he got um, he was unable to get from once from Newcastle over to Carlisle, that he decides to build another road linking Newcastle to Carlisle. And he's in such a hurry that he looks around for convenient stone that could serve him as the foundations for this military road. And what do you think the convenient stone is that he uses? Don't tell me. He, he, he built a road out of Hadrian's Wall. He does. So General Wade is the guy who basically destroys Hadrian's Wall. And the reason why the only stretches of Hadrian's Wall that survive are in areas where, you know, rugged cliffs and so on, is because yeah. General Wade didn't want to go there. Still, a, so, I bet he got so, a bloody good road out of it, I imagine. Yeah, fine. So that's that's why not not a fan, not okay. a fan. Anyway, so he so Wade builds this road, and it's known as Wade's Road, and yeah. that opens up. You know, people can now start going down Loch Ness on both sides, and basically, um, it's from this point on that you start to get kind of mentioned. So there are there are there are people um, there are workmen who, as they're building the road, who report seeing two leviathans, so two giant creatures they and they think they might be whales yeah um then through the 19th century occasional reports but i mean these reports are, are nothing you know they're in, insubstantial will-o'-the-wisp reports of it exactly they're the very kind that you would get, aren't they yeah, yeah all over the place people who've actually probably seen a big fish a seal yeah. um a, a wave <laughs> a wave a boat that- you know, it's they're a stormy drunk. day and they're, yes. yeah, they're drunk or, or they're yes. just romantically inclined and they think they've seen something. Gosh, we saw something in the water. And probably their account of seeing something would be utterly lost and forgotten were it not for the fact that people started looking back and sort yeah. of, you know, well, delving through the archives to find every fleeting reference. Yes. I, but I think also it's a bit like, you know, a snowball going down a, a mountainside that it picks up velocity as right. it gathers weight. Uh, yeah. So 1888, there is a, a guy who, <laughs> who's clearly been drinking too much whiskey who, who claims to have seen a monster like a large salamander. So that makes it into the yeah. newspaper. I mean, a salamander, that's not... That's, <laughs> well, that's that, like that's Zygon, not the, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's not the conventional image of the Loch Ness monster, is it? A salamander? No, no, it's not. Uh, and it by the end of the nineteenth century, it's become sufficiently well known that people in in uh, in America are you know in, in newspapers can write about it about there being yeah. a monster in Loch Ness, and it's kind of part of the Highland mythology. But you're it's right. Part of it's the romantic evocation, I guess, of the Highlands as a wilderness. But I, w- and... I, I would guess no more than say, you know, the story of black dogs in Norfolk or something like that. It's, it's. If you're interested in folklore, perhaps you you're aware of it. But most people, it's barely intruding. And then that changes with the 30s. And yeah. in the 30s, I think you could legitimately talk about Nessie mania. So before we get to the 30s, Tom, can I just interrupt you a second? Because um, am I not right in thinking that the top necromancer, Alistair Crowley, um, he he was involved with Loch Ness in some way? So for those people who don't know, he lived at the kind of turn of the 20th century. He was sort of Mr. Black Magic, the, yeah. the occult. He was the, the guy who in many ways popularized, yeah, the popularized the occult. And I'm very happy to say, Tom, he's the third person um, in, in recent months to have appeared on this podcast who went to my old school. Did he? Alistair Crowley went to your school? He did. So he joins James Jesus Angleton, demented CIA counterintelligence chief and top wardrobe purveyor, C.S. Lewis, Yes, as fellow old Mulvernians like me. So they went. God, imagine C.S. Lewis and Alistair Alistair Crowley Crowley. together. They must have been. I think they were different generations, (laughs) to be fair. They weren't in the same rugger team. No, no, no. They didn't share a dorm. Um, so Alistair Crowley, he lived nearby, near the lock, didn't he? He wore a kilt and sort of pretended to be a laird. Yes. yes. But didn't he put up signs? Well, I'm seeing from your notes, he put up signs <laughs> warning people about the Kolu Mavlik. Who? Yeah. He he basically invented a monster. Yes. To keep people off his land. We didn't even say it was a monster. He never he never said what this <laughs> Kalu Mavlik was. He just put the signs up, and people right. became so terrified of him that they wouldn't go on his land. So. It obviously worked. He claims that he invented the Loch Ness monster, does he? Well, he is that basically his game? Yes, he did subsequently. But uh, but this is drawing on the on the reputation that he was already getting as a man of deep wickedness who summoned up demons and devils and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I, again, I don't think that that. I mean, once the Loch Ness monster has become famous, then then Crowley comes in and says, "Yes, it was all me." But I, again, I don't think that that is part of what's feeding into it. Uh, and so the question of what does feed into it therefore becomes incredibly interesting. And I think that what we should do, I think we should take a break now. And I think when we come back, we should look at what happened in the 30s, Nessie mania, why it might have happened, and then the the kind of the aftershocks of that. I, I hope I'm not going to spoil it for people when I say that I believe one of one of the world's finest newspapers may well have been involved. Am I right, Tom? You are right. <laughs> Join us to find a witch paper after the break. (laughs) Which could it be? Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, very excitingly, top zoological pioneer, explorer, researcher, Tom Holland, is poised to solve the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster. No, I'm not. So, Tom, we've reached the 19... (laughs) Yeah, you are. We've reached the 1930s. You claim that it's all a... The 1930s has the key to the mystery. Well, it's 1933, so, specifically. Yes, okay. Everything kicks off in 1933, and you get this cascading sequence of sightings of the monster. And what's interesting is the way that the kind of the various elements of it become more and more 
recognizable to us. So in a sense, the kind of the image of the monster that we all have, uh, slow, you can see it kind of coalescing in front of you when you look at all these various reports. So the first one is um, a woman called Aldi Mackay, who is uh, driving with her husband down the Castle Urquhart side. Um, right. And this the gets western reported, side, yeah. And the western side. Uh, and this gets reported um, by the local the courier in Inverness. And this is how the, uh, the Inverness courier reports it. Uh, so quoting Aldi Mackay. The creature disported itself, rolling and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realised that here was no ordinary denizen of the depths, because apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. Wow. Which perhaps begs the question of whether... (laughs) Whether it was caused by a passing steamer, <laughs> yeah, I think the passing steamer <laughs> reference there is uh, is is disturbing to me, <laughs> to be honest. Yes. So people are steaming on the lock at this point, Tom. Are they? They are. The lock is becoming a place of of pleasure. I suppose so. so. I'm not entirely au fait with uh, with with, with Loch Ness. The history of the tourist board of yeah <laughs> yeah but it's not but 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 Dominic it's not it's yes. not necessarily tourists so um because there's not you know there's the story of the monster hasn't got any currency and there's not a lot else to see apart from a large expanse of water but you have um you have people who can basically be trusted because they are either sort of the earth watermen people who are familiar with the waters so there's um uh there's there's a water bailiff. Uh, called right. Alex Campbell, who uh, over the course of the summer, we'll come to him in a minute, sees a, 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 he introduces a crucial element to the story. But before that, you also have uh, more mo- motorists. And again and again, it's all about motorists going down the line of the lock. And these are two English tourists, George Spicer and his wife. And what's interesting about them is that they don't see it in the lock. They see it crossing the road in front of them. I mean, this the description is, is terrifying. They're driving along the road. Aren't they? July nineteen thirty-three. So they're yep. clearly on their summer holiday, and they see a large creature, four twenty-five feet long. Yep. I mean, a long, wavy, narrow neck, slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk. Um, and uh, Spice George Spicer describes it as the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I have ever seen in my life. Which may be saying nothing, because presumably he'd never seen a dragon or a prehistoric. He animal says it before. had an animal. It had an animal in its mouth. And a body that's yes. fairly big with a high back, where webbed feet. He can't say if it had a tail because it moved so rapidly. When we got to the spot, it had probably disappeared into the lock. And actually, when you read up on them, they don't sound like fraudsters, Mister and Missus no. George Spicer from Golders Green, because he works at a gentleman's tailor's in the West End. He's the director. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, and so that again, you know, he, this seems a reputable witness, a gentleman's tailor. He's not going to be yeah. lying, is he? But they can't trust the gentleman's tailor. So this is really the of all the descriptions of the monster. This is probably the most important. Would you say, Tom, because it's the one that really establishes the well. It 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 blends with Alex Campbell, the water bailiff, because it's Alex Campbell. He he describes seeing a monster with a long wavy neck, and it's Alex Campbell who says who first suggests that it is like a plesiosaur, and the plesiosaur is the long necked Jurassic creature. But uh, with the flippers, but George Spicer is unusual. I mean, it's it's worth emphasizing this point. 
His description is so unusual because he describes the monster not in the water. So the monster is wandering along the road. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. A description that has never been repeated. So nobody else has ever seen the monster trudging around on the the A-roads. But he does say that you can't see its legs. So the opportunity for it actually to have flippers and perhaps it's hauling itself out of the ground, you know, out of the water is still there. Um, so this this description gets taken to a naturalist who says that <laughs> that it was almost certainly an otter. <laughs> must, must have been an enormous otter, yes. twenty five feet long. <laughs> right. So this is this is what this is what uh, Mr. Spicer's reply that um, yeah. the, the creature he had seen was far too big to be an otter, and but, Spicer but goes it, on to say it should definitely be killed. Yeah, that's that's the British spirit, the English spirit, <laughs> isn't it? Shoot <laughs> it. <laughs> so so this kickstarts a huge amount of interest doesn't it in the press well of course because people presumably believe mr spicer is telling the truth yes so you've got you've got uh, well, this, you've got this re- well you've got this reputable gentleman's tailor from yeah. london and you've got this water bailiff who is you know the gilly that kind of salt yeah. of the earth figure from a john Buchan novel all that yeah. kind of thing again absolutely trustworthy and the pair of them, their evidence combines to, to imply that there is this creature with a very long, curvy neck. And it's Campbell who says, this is a plesiosaur. And right. that's what then really kickstarts it, because it's not just a monster, but it's a scientific monster. Yeah. So it's it could dinosaur, be a kind yeah. of prehistoric hangover. And that's really, I think, what, what gets people excited. And so from then on, you start to get this cascade effect. So you in November 19th, 1933 you get the first photograph or at least alleged photograph um a um, photograph that by a man called hugh gray and i see from your notes it says um a photograph that's actually believed to be of his own dog <laughs> getting a stick from the lock so i mean i hope if, if there are Loch Ness monster enthusiasts into this who are dismayed by my skepticism i have to warn you there was there is more skepticism to come um, uh, yes, but, but yeah. So that photograph is so not that's... definitive evidence. I think it's fair to say, Tom. And then what hots up is that you start to get eccentric figures coming up. The kind of the the image of the big game hunter or the yeah. uh, kind of Professor Challenger figure from the the Conan Doyle stories. So um, the first monster hunter is a man called Commander Rupert Gould, who, as yeah. his na- title implies, had been in the navy. Um, he was very kind of eccentric. A uh, man who loved going down rabbit holes to some effect, because he is the man who um, discovered uh, John Harrison's chronometers, which are you know the the latitude guy. Okay, uh, and he'd found these chronometers uh, kind of buried away in the um, uh, the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, and he got I mean, them finding out some chronometers in a museum is not the same yeah, as finding it, a monster in a lock. It's it's not, but you know these chronometers are are a big deal. And they've been ignored, and he's yeah. dusted them down, and he's produced them. So he has this. I'm on... telling you now, we're not doing a podcast about the chronometers. I know we're not. I know we're not. But he is also, when he's not mending chronometers, he's obsessed by the idea of sea monsters, the idea that yeah. there are long neck creatures out in the out in the the ocean. But he's the obvious person to turn to with the idea that maybe it's you know it's actually in this this lock. Um, and he gets funding from uh, a guy who is, um, he's the heir to, I think it's Dundee Marmalade, which is the most yeah, popular. Big, very big marmalade. Yeah. Big, big marmalade in uh, in 1930s Britain. Um, a, a guy called Alexander Keeler, who is uh, has nymphomaniac qualities. Um, he's okay. a, a sex addict. 
And so when <laughs> right. he's when he's not being a sex addict, he's he's funding uh, Commander Rupert Gould to go after the Loch Ness monster. However, however, Rupert Gould is not the only hunter, and this Dominic is where Britain's best love newspaper comes in. Well, just before we come to Britain, Britain's best love newspaper, I just want to um, put forward a theory, which is, of course, we're in the 1930s, so the world has been mapped, and the days of Victorian explorers are kind of over, aren't they? I mean, even yeah. the poles have been conquered. So the, the obsession with creatures of the deep, I mean, this is a generation that has, actually, you mentioned Professor Challenger. These are now people who've grown up reading Conan Doors, The Lost World, I suppose, aren't they? And they you know, there are no more worlds to conquer other than the deeps. And so if you if you if you fantasize about lost kingdoms or or you know surviving dinosaurs, the oceans are really the only place to look, I suppose. Do you think, Tom? I think that's absolutely true. Well, let's let's look at this further when we've described the next character who turns okay. up. So you mentioned um the newspapers. Uh, and the newspaper in question is the Daily Mail. So for people, I know we have a lot of overseas listeners, so that's basically the British equivalent of Le Monde or um, El Pais, <laughs> um, newspaper record, I think people call it. Uh, that's not that's not entirely true. Um, um, <laughs> is there an equivalent of the Daily Mail in other countries? I'm not sure. It's. I think, I it's, think these it's, days it's actually the Daily Mail. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's much detested by people on the left, um, much written for by people like Dominic. Well, would it be fair to say? Uh, <laughs> well, the Daily Mail is enormous in the popular culture of the early 20th century. So it's founded in the 1890s by Alfred Harmsworth. And um, it is sort of attention-grabbing journalism. Uh, and, and what the Daily Mail does a lot in the 1920s and 30s is stunts and wheezes. So they're always sending people to discover things or they're investigating mysteries or they're inventing hats or they're sponsoring, you know, the first um, British radio broadcast, Nellie Melville on the top of a department store. So they're always doing these kind of, they've, they've constantly got gimmicks, I guess. Yeah. And this maintains their audience. I mean, their core audience, which is a sort of populist audience, sort of lower middle class, um, ordinary people who can't be bothered to read the Times, uh, which is also owned by the same newspaper baron at one point. Uh, they, you know, they don't want to wade through sort of turgid prose, sort of column after column of it. They want fun and they want and, sensation. And this, is before, and this is before television. So it's, yeah. it's a kind of, it's the closest you get to, uh, you know, I guess kind of documentary about aliens on the History Channel or something like that. <laughs> right. That's basically what's going on here because they see, the editorial team see the photograph that may be of this dog that is being marketed as, as the photograph of a monster. And so they decide that they want proof and they want yeah. to blazon it over the front page of the newspaper. Um, and so this is the first intrusion of the London press into, into the story. So up to now, it's all been local newspapers, particularly based in Inverness. And so suddenly the London press turning its attention to, yeah. to Loch Ness. And they employ, uh, even as, as um, Commander Gould is out on his boat, hunting for the monster they employ an extraordinary figure called marmaduke weatherall you couldn't is... make him up because you know, i mean he's great no no so he he's he's an actor but he's also yeah. a big game hunter do you know what he he'd 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 performed in he'd he'd played both david livingston and robinson crusoe in films he'd directed and written himself yeah 
That's the kind of man we're dealing with. Absolutely. And that sense that he's both, he's he's an actor who's kind of played people who've been into Africa on great quests, like David Livingstone. But he's also um, a big game hunter who's been to Africa on quests is absolutely kind of redolent of that mood in the early 30s, I think, isn't it? Of of the way in which the kind of the traditions of Victorian daring do and imperial adventuring are starting to cannibalize themselves. Because actually, yeah. you know, there's the, as you say, there's not much of the world left unexplored. And so if you're going to have thrills and spills and explorers, you need to start migrating to to film, you know, lost valleys of the Amazon yes. or whatever. Yes. Uh, and, and there's obviously a very obvious cinematic example of this that we'll come to when we've finished our roundup of, uh, of all the sightings. But of course, Wetherill cannot afford to come back and say, it's all hokum, can he? I mean, no. it's, bo- it's both in the Daily Mail's interests, but crucially in his interests, that he, this sort of bearded, you know, this, this sort of Professor Challenger figure, as you say, the Arthur Conan Doyle character, he absolutely needs to come back with something. And for two days, he finds nothing. And then on the third day, Tom, what happens? <laughs> so on the third day, he's on the, the, the kind of the really wild eastern eastern side the general wade's roadside which is mainly rock uh, so very little mud but he comes across a, a very short patch of mud and there remarkably are some stunning prints and they're eight inches across and they've got four short clawed toes and they look a little bit like a hippopotamus but obviously it can't be a hippopotamus because you don't know hippopotamuses in uh, in Loch Ness monsters, um, and nearby are another set of of, uh, of prints, uh, and this is obviously a massive stroke of luck because it seems that the monster, if it is the monster, has walked across one of the very few stretches where the imprint of its footprints would what be left. What, what a, so <laughs> incredible! And so, um, uh, whether all wires back to the Daily Mail have found the monster. And the mail clears its headlines. Monster of Loch Ness is not a legend, but a fact. Well, that's the kind of understated headline you would absolutely (laughs) expect. (laughs) So huge excitement. And only once they've run the headline do they then send the the prints to the Natural History Museum in London to see if they can um, identify it. And they what say does the that Natural it, History Museum say, yeah. That's well, the... they say that it is not the impression of any known aquatic mammal in the British Isles. Um, but they continue to do the research, uh, and okay. they, uh, and in the new year, so early 1934, they reveal that it is in fact a hippopotamus footprints, uh, and it's a single footprint. So, in other words, it it's a single footprint of a hippopotamus that has been pressed down into the mud over and over again to make it look like there are multiple footprints. Um, and they suggest the the Natural History Museum suggests that it's a, a hunting trophy, um, a, a, a hippopotamus foot that's been converted into an umbrella stand, which is very much the kind of thing that <laughs> that's such that, a nineteen thirties. <laughs> you kill a hippopotamus and you turn one of its its uh, legs into a, an umbrella stand. So I think this is a story that speaks very well of Marmaduke Wetherill, actually, because he is a man who clearly had the foresight to travel to Scotland with a hippopotamus foot umbrella stand <laughs> in his luggage, just in case. Just in case. Because he or, presu- cause, go on. Well, it, perhaps, but, but I think more probably it wasn't him. It was someone else who did it. Who was making fun of him. I think so. Yeah. Because 
as we will find out, Weatherall is unbelievably upset by this. And he's particularly upset by the fact that the male, <laughs> rather than standing by their man in his, his hour of need, turn on him and call him an idiot and mock him roundly <laughs> for his incompetence. And again, goes all over the front page. I can't so, believe they would have done something like that, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> shock, shocking behaviour and very unlike anything you get from it now. So, uh, so Weatherall is left very, very embittered and with a big grudge against yeah. the male and against um, everybody involved in the the search for Nessie. So he he withdraws, licking his wounds. But over the course of 1934, more and more extraordinary developments happen. So, um, and again, you get, you get people, the witnesses who cut through are witnesses who everyone can recognize as being reputable and reliable. Yeah. So um, early in January, you have a veterinary student on a motorbike who um, almost runs into the monster. So, Dominic, that's another one where the monster is out of the... Out and about, out rolling around. Doesn't I mean, odd that it doesn't happen so much these days, but uh, and, there you go. And, and the, the veterinary student again says that it looks exactly like a plesiosaur. So and then in April... The evidence is stacking up. In April, you get probably the, the key piece of evidence, and it's in the form of a photograph. And it's much a much better photograph than the photograph that looks like a dog's head. And in fact, I would go so far as to say it's one of the most famous photographs of the 20th century. It and is. You know it's the photograph anything, that everybody's seen. Yeah. yeah it's the, the, the famous We'll publicise this podcast with. Yeah. yeah. So it's it looks like a plesiosaur. That's how you would describe it. It's a long neck creature with a hint of back. And there are kind of ripples around it, um, black and white. And you would know it if you've seen it. Yes. And this is known as the surgeon's photo, and it was taken in April 1934. And it's called the surgeon's photo because the person who took it was both a surgeon but didn't want to, to be named. And again, this reticence was seen as something that suggested that, you know, the accuracy of it because he clearly well, he's wasn't not after publicity. He's not yeah. after publicity. Um, and it, it, it turns out so that the surgeon is a man called Robert Wilson. Um, who's a gynecologist, has rooms off Harley Street. And the whole, th I mean, again, this is another character who seems sprung from a Buchan novel. Um, yeah. the, the kind of the hint of tales of imperial daring do. So he is born in Madagascar. He's the son of missionaries. Um, he goes to boarding school in England. Uh, the, he, he, he comes of age during the First World War. The day that he becomes of age, he rushes off in lists serves very valiantly and well in the, in the First World War, gets mentioned in dispatches, uh, comes back, sets up his medical practice, um, and he is the person who produces this photo. And the, the Daily Mail get hold of it. They yes, cop yeah. it to yeah. make it look as impressive as possible. They put it on the front page, and really that is the photograph that makes it not just a, a global, a, um, a, a, a national talking point, but a global talking point. And basically, everyone is obsessed by it to the degree that even Nessie's MP runs into it. So Sir Murdoch MacDonald, who's the MP for Inverness Shire, um, and he's driving with his son early on the morning of the 8th of, of August, and he sees Nessie, his most famous constituent. Uh, and it's two blackish grey humps uh, moving slowly south. Uh, and it's not just the MP who sees it. It's also seen, and I'm quoting here Gareth Williams, A Monstrous Commotion, his great book, says the site was witnessed by a semi-naked Yorkshireman who sprang out of his caravan with binoculars and confirmed that it was neither a tree trunk nor a boat. The MP was on his way to see the Secretary of State for Scotland, who was happy to accept the monster as a reasonable excuse for starting their meeting late. 
So you've had an MP, you've had a semi-naked Yorkshireman, you've had a veterinary <laughs> student, yes. you've had a surgeon, Top, yeah. you've had a you've had a, a water bailiff, uh, you've had a gentleman's tailor. Okay, these My are skepticism broad is of very very respectable figures. Although, so the surgeon's photograph, the photograph that we're all very familiar with, people have analysed it very closely. Okay, they? well, they've discussed they, the ripples. They've discussed. They have. They have. And um, am I right in thinking there is a twist with the surgeon's photograph? There is a twist. Should we should we reveal the twist now, or uh, uh, should we say? Well, it's, it? your, it's, it's your choice. You're 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 enjoying yourself far too much. So I'm going <laughs> to let you decide. <laughs> okay. So the the, the, the twist is. That the surgeon, and this was discovered, I think, in the nineties, to everyone's huge disappointment, that it was a fake, uh, and it was faked by our old friend Marmaduke Weatherall, who did it with uh, an associate of uh, Robert Wilson, and they went to a kind of, you know, a, a, a chalet part of the lock, and they made a model of it and they photographed it, uh, and basically, if you look at the original photo before it got cropped by the to go on the, the front page of the Mail. Um, it, it looks much more like a fake than it does in the yeah. the famous version of it. Um, and so they bought a, a toy submarine, hadn't they? And they yeah, made they, a sort of wooden... A, a wooden thing to go on the top. Yeah. Um, and um, basically Weatherall did it to get his own back. Uh, but but in a way, the, is, the, he... the laugh was on him because... You're right. <laughs> everyone... <laughs> I read Everyone this. Took it he, so seriously. He 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 thought this he would make fools of the mail by getting them yeah. to print this story on the front page. Um but they did, and it was tremendously successful. Massively <laughs> boosted the circulation. Hurrah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um as 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 sort of yeah, as revenge goes, it wasn't very successful. Now that that's not a salamander. <laughs> it's not a salamander. But that, but that of course is the image that we now so it's the dinosaur image, isn't it? And I suppose the nineteen thirties you know, it's an age of tremendous scientific interest in dinosaurs of popular interest. So you can see why it caught the yes, public imagination. But I, th- I think that, th- I, I mean, we talked about um, film and we talked about adventure stories where people go to remote areas of the world because basically there aren't any remote areas of the world anymore. Um, and the most famous cinematic example of that is King Kong. Yeah. And King Kong yeah. comes out in London in spring 1933 and it comes out in i think it reaches inverness by the summer oh very good and in king kong um i don't know if you remember it there's a a sequence where so king kong is uh it's you know king kong is the giant gorilla gets brought back to new york and climbs the empire state building everyone knows that story but on the island um king kong lives there surrounded by dinosaurs Mm. and the big game hunters who are going off to, to, to capture King Kong and get Fay Ray back from him um, as part of this expedition are shown crossing a, a swamp in which uh, a long necked dinosaur. So a sauropod emerges. Uh, sauropods were vegetarian, but um, herbivorous, but um, in this, they're very carnivorous and ferocious and they attack, they up, they upend the boat and then the, the monster chases the, the, the fleeing uh, explorers through the jungle and the profile of that monster in king kong is very very like a lot of the drawings and then in due course the photograph the surgeon's yeah. photograph that you get and it's hard i think hard to think that it's not influencing it because the degree to which the monster comes to be described as a plesiosaur almost exactly maps onto the the the, the screening of, of king kong yeah i mean i'm I'm sure not deliberately, but it's just 
such a kind of dramatic um such a dramatic image and you know as you say i think i think that it is a, a kind of an expression of you know a yearning for those tales of 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 daring do in distant climes in a world where everything is closing in well you were um, talking about motoring smaller. weren't you so i mean yeah. the 30s is a hate is a golden age of motoring people getting cars for the first time new roads and so on yeah so, so the Wade road have... has been given an upgrade yeah as well that's so the highlands have kind of been opened up to an extent to lots of visitors so you've got a tourist industry that is taking off but at the same time i suppose there's also an anxiety that the world is becoming you know the anxiety that we're so familiar with today that the world is becoming globalized and homogenized and a yearning therefore for for places to have this kind of romantic epic grandeur yeah. and mystery and this sort of primitivism, I suppose. I mean, this is what the um, so the 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 Scottish government's education materials that have, that recently caused headlines in Britain about Loch Ness. This is what they point out, isn't it? This is what they say that this is that the Loch Ness monster is, in a way, is part of the same kind of romanticization of Scotland as you get with kilts, tartan, Rob Roy, Braveheart. Do you not think, Tom, there's a bit of that about it? I th- it I th- sort of I th- locates Scotland as a place where there are dinosaurs in contrast um, to cosmopolitan, metropolitan, urban England. Or the lowlands of Scotland, more pointedly, because it's yeah. absolutely a Scottish story. I mean, you know, the, the Daily Mail comes crashing in from London as an outsider, but it's absolutely not um, an English invention. It's not a, an, a pro- an English projection. Um, I saw Alex Massey, very distinguished journalist and columnist uh, rather i mean he's kind of i don't tongue firmly in his cheek was making was asking about this um it's it's the loch ness monster comes from scottish traditions and it's scots who initially see it uh and of course loch ness monster has been a fundamental part of how scotland marks itself to the world it's a crucial part of the uh, you know the tourist infrastructure it brings people to the highlands and and that is something that starts right from the beginning that you are having so people are huge huge numbers descend on loch ness over 1933 and 34 there's this extraordinary story i was tipped off about this by neil k on the discord that scotland's first football floodlights were taken away to be used to highlight the the loch so this this had been put up by caledonian fc in inverness and it, they, this was kind of very innovative. They were the first football club in the country to use floodlights in this way. And they yeah. had, I think they'd used them for about three or four games. And then um, <laughs> somebody bought them to put up on the shores of Loch Ness to, to kind of try and highlight um, the presence of the monster. And the, the poor club only got their floodlights back again in 1959, which is hmm. very sad. Um, but people throughout the post-war years, so by this point, the monster had, I guess, become embedded in the national imagination, in the world's imagination, become part of the the tourist industry. But you do get quite distinguished people, don't you? You do. A, a man who was the curator of fishes at the natural well, history so, museum. So one of the thing, one of the things that happens just before the world goes into war, and I think also one of the one of the other reasons why it kicks off in 1933 and 34 is this the depression. It's coming to power of Hitler in Germany. It's a really yeah. dark time. And people want cheering up, and it's a kind of perfect story. And I think that 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 it's a bit actually a bit like the discovery of Tutankhamun. It's a good news story, and it's a quest. And I'm sure that the shadow of Tutankhamun, which again has this kind of interface with the press, 
quests, mm. dramatic characters, kind of big game figures, all these kind of you know panoply of characters who you might recognize from a film. Very similar with Loch Ness, except with the convenience you don't have to go all the way to Egypt. You know, yeah. it's, it, it, it's there in Britain. It's kind of waiting on your doorstep. But one of the, one of the things I think that um, does serve to elevate the whole narrative above a kind of um, uh, King Kong level is in 1938, a fish called the coelacanth is discovered in waters off South Africa. And the coelacanth had been thought, you know, it's a very, very ancient fish. It had basically been around since, I think, three... 350 million years old, something like that, and was sort of gone extinct with the dinosaurs because yeah. there was no fossil trace of it after that. And then it, it got discovered in 1938. Um, and so suddenly the idea that creatures that had been thought extinct might not have gone extinct is scientifically reputable. And that is something that feeds through through the war years, through the 40s into the 50s. And yes, yeah. and as you say, so so in the 50s, um, the curator of fishes at the Natural History Museum, so he's a guy who's absolutely on top of the cedar camp and the implications of it. He's at Loch Ness. He sees a, a large humped object going through the water and he's convinced it's a plesiosaur and he rushes back and tells everyone. And the Natural History Museum are not amused and he gets forced out. Well, uh, he presumably wanted to see it. Do you think, Tom? He wanted to see the monster. Yeah, probably. But the person who really kind of kickstarts the whole obsession again in the '60s is this guy Tim Dinsdale, who wrote the book that I mentioned at the start of the of, the, of this episode. Uh, who in, he's a, a, an aeronautical engineer working at Heathrow. I mean, you know, the most unromantic location imaginable. Mm. Um, and he's on holiday in the Highlands in in uh, I think spring 1960, and he sees Nessie, and he's got Phil, he's got camera, and he films it, and. It's it's that footage that yeah. people can actually look at it, and this attracts the attention of a very very distinguished figure, uh, a man called Sir Peter Scott. And Dominic, you mentioned you you specified how the world is shrinking because people have been to the poles, and Peter Scott is yeah. the son of Scott of the Antarctic. Yeah, and, Robert Falcon Scott. Yeah, and and Scott of the Antarctic, in I think his last letter to his wife just before he dies. Peter Scott is two years old at this point. He writes to his wife and says, please make sure that Peter grows up with a, with a love of the natural world. And Peter does grow up with a love of the natural world. He becomes very, very distinguished. He, he, initially, he's a sportsman. He shoots duck. That's um, a, that shows a great but, love of the natural yeah, world. But, but he then kind of turns and he, he, um, he becomes an ornithologist. He becomes a conservationist. He helps to set up the World Wildlife Fund. He becomes, I was going to say, um, I've, I, as a boy, I went to his um, wildfowl place at Slimbridge. It was a great place for school outings in the 1970s and 1980s. And I imagine quite a few of our listeners will have been there yeah. and will know of him because of his role setting up the World Wildlife Fund. But he's, I mean, he's, he, so, so he's Scott's son. Scott of the Antarctics, and he is a, a kind of hangover again from that age of imperial daring do. So he's a very distinguished war record. Uh, he is uh, an Olympic athlete, so he wins yeah. bronze, I think, in the dinghy racing in the the, um, the Berlin Olympics of thirty six. So that, that's the Hitler Olympics. Yeah. Um, and the dinghy racing is held at Kiel, and he then uh, goes back and bombs it <laughs> with the mm. RAF. Um, so he's he's. Um, a, a very brave kind of dashing man. He marries Elizabeth Jane, Elizabeth Jane Howard. Oh, um, who yeah. then goes on to marry King Amos, Amos, doesn't she? Become Martin Amos's um, stepmother. stepmother. So very interesting man. 
and he he meets up with Dinsdale, looks at the footage, and basically becomes obsessed, and becomes he really wants the Loch Ness monster to be real, and perhaps there's all kinds of stuff to do with his father. I don't know. Mm. I mean, maybe I'm over psychologizing it there, but perhaps you know he wants to find something that would, yeah, you know, be remarkable and extraordinary, a great quest, uh, as his father had gone on. Um, and in the seventies, he 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 and Dinsdale meet up with an American lawyer from Boston, a, a man called Robert Rines, who in the early 70s starts using sonar to explore the lock. And in 1972, the sonar picks out a huge shape plus another photograph of what might, seen from a certain angle, look like a flipper. Yes, I've seen those pictures. Um, oh, of course, it might not be a flipper. That's the downside with that well, photo. Well, but so th- these get picked up by um, a man who... Anyone interested in royal affairs in Britain will be very, very familiar with a man called Nicholas Witchell. This is such a bizarre part of the BBC story. royal correspondent. Yeah. But back in the early seventies, he was um, he was a student, uh, and he becomes a massive, massive kind of Nessie twitcher, and he writes a book about it. Um, and so Scott and uh, uh, and Dinsdale read Nicholas Witchell's book, and they get in touch with with Robert Rhymes. Um, and you know, they all team up and in 75, Ryan's takes another extraordinary photo, um, which again, if you know anything about the rest of the monster, you'll recognize it's a kind of yellowish photo and it seems to show a head on a long neck yeah. attached to a, a kind of body. Uh, again, it requires a certain leap of faith, but once you've seen it, you know, if you're looking for it, that's what you see. And this encourages Scott to propose that the Loch Ness Monster actually exists. And he comes up with a scientific name for it. And he wants to use the Loch Ness Monster as an icon for conservation. So in other words, if there is this prehistoric creature that is in the, in, in the loch, then it shows, the, you know, it, it reveals the wonders of the natural world in a way that would ser- you know, enable the monster to serve as an absolute kind of ambassador for, for global conservation. So that's what, that's what he's... Um, he's interested in he summons people from uh, across the the scientific natural the the, um, the world of natural history and makes his case and the response of the the former chairman of the natural history museum's trustees is to say we cannot do this without a specimen you know we need a physical specimen and without that the uh, the chairman says the monster not merely beggars description but buggers it and okay. <laughs> the response of, of David Attenborough, who is a, a yeah. good friend of Peter Scott, keen conservationist, Scott would like Attenborough on board. David Attenborough's response is to say, well, it's very courageous. Oh, David <laughs> so Attenborough's Scott always is very tactful, courageous. isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, paleontologists say, we, we can't do anything about this without bones. And basically, people don't accept that, that, that Peter Scott has a, has a leg to stand on with this. And flipper. for yeah. Peter Scott's reputation, I think it's a bit like uh, Hugh Trevor Roper and the, the Hitler Diaries. It's, you know, it's, it's yeah. a man with an incredibly distinguished reputation using that reputation to try and convince people that something so extraordinary as to seem incredible actually is true, but it does turn out to be incredible. And it, uh, it it kind of really damages Scott's reputation in the way that Hugh Trevor Roper's reputation was damaged by his authenticating the Hitler diaries. 
So what's interesting about this, Tom, is that the story of the Loch Ness Monster as a historical phenomenon turns out not to be really a story about the Loch Ness Monster so much as it's a story about, well, it is a story about Scotland and its place in, in the imagination as, as a sort of wild, as the Highlands as a kind of wild yeah. part of the United Kingdom. But it's also really, is it? Am I, am I pushing it too far to say it's a story about the aftermath of the Victorian kind of, in inverted commas, conquest so. of the natural world and of imperialism. Yeah. And what do the next generation do? What do, what do you know, people like, what's his name? That mom, what's it, Marmaduke Wetherill or whatever his name is? Yeah. Um, or, 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 or Peter Scott, people who are living in the shadow yeah, of the and, generation Yeah, and the Duke before. of Edinburgh as well. I mean, it's all that kind of, it's, it's that class of person who are coming of yeah. age in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, who have been raised by the traditions and the stories told of the British Empire to assume that their destiny is to go out and discover, you know, distant lands, strange valleys, rocky plateaus with dinosaurs on them, all that kind yes. of stuff. That that kind of um that mythology of imperialism. And it's all gone. And in a way, the Loch Ness Monster is a, a kind of a ghostly after echo of that. And I think that yeah. that's why you get all these kind of figures, uh, Marmaduke Weatherall, uh, Peter Scott, who are almost like figures out of time. Yeah. And I, but but I think it's not just about um, not just about imperialism. I think it is also about uh, a, a growing anxiety about the depletion of the natural world. Um, about uh, the collapse of biodiversity. I mean, it would, people wouldn't have put it like that in the in the fifties. But Peter Scott was a, an absolutely committed conservationist, and I think that he was onto something with this idea that the Loch Ness monster might be an icon. Because in a way, our yearning to believe that the Loch Ness monster exists, our yearning to believe that um, a, a plesiosaur might have survived extinction, is expressive of our longing to believe that you know, huge numbers of species can survive extinction. Yeah. You know, it's, there are more recent creatures where, you know, so the thylacine, which is a, um, a marsupial creature in Tasmania that was wiped out. Um, people again and again and again report seeing it in, in, in Tasmania. It always turns out not to be the case, but it, again, it's kind of speaks almost of a kind of guilt, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting so, that um, the Loch Ness Monster coincides within 20 or 30 years with both Yeti and Bigfoot. So Bigfoot um, in America. Um, so that, as you said, it's the Pacific Northwest. I think it's a really a 1950s, 60s kind of phenomenon. And again, I wonder if it's the same, you know, the United States is being opened up by Eisenhower's, you know, highways, um, by air travel and so on. And people want to believe that there's a bit yeah. of the wilderness left. Um, and whether that's guilt or whether it's romanticism or exoticism, I mean, who can say? Um, so yeah, you don't believe I, in the Loch Ness monster, Tom? What a shame! Well, what a so, disappointment. Well, I think it's I think it's pretty it's it's conclusively been proved not to exist because um, what's happened, of course, in recent years is that you've got DNA that basically torpedoes all kinds of fantasies and dreams. Um, yeah. And they they did um, a study of the DNA in Loch Ness, and there is nothing unusual at all in the genetic material. Right. So. You know, if if there was a Loch Ness monster, it's not there now. So, so says that's very top, sad. Top party pooper, <laughs> Tom Holland. Yeah. But just just you know, we talked about the Scottish uh, tourist industry. Just one 
shout out for the Scottish tourist industry. Because have you? I don't. Have you been to Loch Ness? I've never been to Loch Ness, Tom. Okay, well, it's great. I mean, it's really worth. It. If you've had any interest in Loch Ness monsters, to go there to look at the castle, the stat, you know, it's all very familiar. But they have a, a, a magnificent um, a, a museum devoted to it, and you go round all this museum, and the final room, it's saying, "What was it?" And I was fully expecting them to say it was a plesiosaur or something, or we don't know, and they yeah. say it was a sturgeon. That's Oh, really? that's, that's what they, I thought that's really admirable that you've got this massive cash cow that tourists come all over the world for. <laughs> you basically say you've been you know no it doesn't exist so kudos to whoever runs that museum okay I think we've put that one to, to bed as well don't you Tom um, that we have yeah um, and on that bombshell uh, we will say goodbye and uh, we will see you next time bye 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 Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.